Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. This is Jay Shapiro. Uh, since this program is being broadcast during the period between the New Year Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, this period is known as the Ten Days of Penitence. When we're supposed to look into our deeds, how we behaved over the last year, and try to improve ourselves for the coming year. I came across an article by Raymond Apple, who is the emeritus, emeritus rabbi of the Great Synagogue in Sydney, Australia, and he wrote some thoughts which I want to share with you because I think they're appropriate. What he wrote was that the COVID years have been especially difficult during the high holiday season, the high holy days, in many parts of the world. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur have seen synagogues locked, their congregants under lockdown. A lot of people are feeling depressed. A lot of people are feeling uncertain. Where normally the synagogues would be filled with people and the services are rich in song and prayer, the COVID period has made a mockery of the holiest days of the calendar. This year is a little bit better than the last two years, but still not up to par. A lot of people are still coming to synagogue with masks, and we're sitting far apart. One of the uh, items that is very prominent, the prominent item on Rosh Hashanah, is the sounding of the shofar. The shofar is normally the great dramatic moment of the New Year's service. It also happens to mark of the end of Yom Kippur, and uh, when it's uh, sounded on the end of Yom Kippur, uh, it's accompanied with Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So if the shofar goes well and the right sounds are emitted, there is generally some nodding or a hum of approval in the congregation. No one is allowed to talk during the uh, blowing of the shofar, but there's a lot of uh, head, head, head moving or arm moving or expressions on faces. So if something goes wrong, the congregation shakes its head and uh, the spirit of mischief gets into the instrument somehow. Even though the shofar blower has set notes to sound, it's obvious that music is not its main nature. What the chauffeur is doing, the sounding of the chauffeur is doing, is sending a message. Blowing the chauffeur, the ram's horn, was a well-known multi-purpose call in biblical times, not just on Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Sadia Gon, who lived... Uh, uh, I guess he lived about a thousand years ago. 
He identified 10 occasions when the shofar was used. The shofar announced the creation, the revelation on Mount Sinai, and the exhortations of the prophets for the people to be good. It proclaimed a military advance and it called for a military retreat. It marked radical occasions such as the commencement of the new month and it announced the word of God. One day we hope and pray it will proclaim the messianic redemption. The chauffeur is commanded in the Torah in the book of Numbers it has two chief, seemingly contradictory purposes as a call to war in the book of Numbers and as a proclamation of freedom in the book of Leviticus. Translated into personal spiritual terms, the first purpose sees the individual struggling with themselves, battling an inner enemy feeling guilt for the year's wrongdoing. The second purpose sees the human soul cleanse of its transgressions, committing to a new regimen that is full of positive uh, possibilities. And there's no doubt the people, I guess, the older you get, the more the sounding of the chauffeur brings back memories. When I heard the chauffeur in the synagogue this week, it brought me back memories of my childhood in my grandfather's synagogue, waiting for the sound of chauffeur, and standing next to the one who was blowing the chauffeur. It brings back extremely pleasant memories of my childhood. And I think that's probably true of most people. The chauffeur is only sounded at a certain time, once a year, on Rosh Hashanah, a little bit on Yom Kippur at the end, and it, so it brings back many, many memories. Maimonides says that although the blowing of the chauffeur is the commandment of the Torah, it has further meaning. According to Maimonides, it's a wake-up call telling the people who are sleeping, rouse yourselves from your lethargy, search your deeds, return to repentance, remember your creator, you who forget truth and the vanities of the moment who go astray after vain illusions that neither profit nor save. Look to your souls, mend your ways and actions, leave your evil path and unworthy purpose, seek it. Seek the way of the Lord. That's what Maimonides says. That was written over 800 years ago. The Zohar, which is an interesting book in the Bible that most people are not familiar with, sees divine human reciprocity in the chauffeur. It says, when human beings repent of their sins, they blow the chauffeur on earth. Its sound ascends on high and awakens the heavenly chauffeur and mercy is aroused and the judgment of doom is removed. That's what the Zohar said. And the Zohar is one of the uh, mystical books 
of our tradition. Now, sermons these days in the synagogues tend to focus on the things we've done wrong, but that was hardly the appropriate thought at a time when the enemy was not internal and not ourselves, but was an external pestilence that polluted every part of the globe. That's what COVID did. What COVID did to the human heart and to the human soul and to the individual and to the family and to the social mood, the makeup of society was nothing less than horrific. We could hardly lay the finger on blame on ourselves that year during COVID, nor can the professional or qualified expounders of scripture rebuke us too robustly. We had a lot of excuses because of COVID for things we didn't do. We were not lacking our faults or failures, and uh, that couldn't be the right thing for the years of COVID. The war inside our conscience certainly needed attention, but we worried more physically about COVID. The preachers gave notice that once COVID was over, they'd go back to the anti-transgression track. They would tell people again not to sin. During COVID, they told people to be healthy, but not yet. What was more relevant was not the first, but the second aspect of the chauffeur, not the call to war, but the cry of peace. Now this year, the chauffeur is back on duty, mostly. COVID is more or less gone. Indeed, the retreat of the COVID enemy fitted into the biblical notion of starting a battle with the chauffeur blast and using the same chauffeur to mark the retreat from battle. The major task that awaited us in the absence of the chauffeur was to promise ourselves to work on our values and our virtues. Now we'll see how we are doing. Pretty much the COVID is over and we're back, if you will, with less excuse to do what's right. This is a message that I, uh, as I would more or less quoted from uh, the rabbi, Rabbi Raymond Apple, but it's true. During COVID, everything was different. In my lifetime, I never saw anything like the COVID period, and I'm sure this is true of most people. There was a time back during the time of the First World War, more than 100 years ago, when there was an epidemic of influenza. It killed millions of people, and the world was really went to great difficulty, right at the period after the First World War. And now in our time, 100 years later, we had to deal with the COVID, something that was unexpected. It brought out, I think, the best in most of us. And hopefully now we are back on the normal track. I guess in a way you can say all the excuses we used uh, for not doing things during COVID, the excuses are gone. COVID is gone. We have to be back to being good people, searching into ourselves and doing, doing what's right. I think that is the message between 
Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur on the first year, essentially after the COVID. COVID is gone. We're back without excuses. Let's try to be better people. Since I find myself in a preaching mood for some reason, I guess it's the time of the year, uh, I want to say something else. Uh, I'm, I uh, am recording uh, this program on uh, the day after Rosh Hashanah, after the New Year, and it is in Jewish uh, custom, and Jewish law, it is called Tzom Gedalia, is the the fast, the fast uh, from sunrise to sunset, and you don't eat because of something that happened in, in uh, the time after the destruction of the first temple. I don't want to go into all the history, uh, which is quite complicated. It could take a whole program, but the um, Israel, the land of Israel had been taken over by foreign conquerors, the Babylonians, and they left a Jewish governor in charge. And this Jewish governor was assassinated. His name was Gedalian. He was assassinated, unfortunately, by other Jews. And this brought down a, the harsh decrees from the Babylonian rulers. So, uh, we fast on this day. To an, in a large sense, the fast, we have a number of fasts during the year beside Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a fast dictated in the Bible. But we have a number of other fasts uh, that are dictated by things that happened in our history. And uh, the Rambam uh, Maimonides connects many ideas in his description of what he calls the minor fast. He includes history in the past, memory linking that to the present, and repentance connecting the past, present, and future. The, it's very interesting. The, he speaks of the, uh, of Maimonides speaks of the past being a zikaron l'masim haraim u'maseyavoteno, the fast are a remembrance of misbehavior by ourselves and our forefathers, and that is why we have the fast. And he's he further if choosing this particular fast, the third day of the month of Tishrei in which Gedalia was uh, killed, the, uh, it ended, it ended uh, up in a, a uh, much harsher uh, regime under the Babylonians. So it's supposed to be a time of remembrance and to learn from that memory. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs and one of his books called Rediscovering Our Moral Purpose said the following, there is one form of outsourcing that tends to be little noticed, the outsourcing of memory. Our computers and our smartphones have developed larger and larger memories from kilobytes to megabytes to gigabytes. 
while our own personal memories and those of our children have gotten smaller and smaller. In fact, why bother to remember anything these days? You can look it up in a microsecond on Google or Wikipedia. But here the rabbi says, I think we make a mistake. We confuse history and memory, which are not the same thing at all. History is an answer to the question, what happened? History is a record of what happened. Memory is an answer to the question, who am I? History is about facts. Memory is about identity. History is a story. You, you can even divide the word in two and say it is his story. It happened to someone else, not me. We read it. We, read, we do not find ourselves in history books. We find stories about other people. They happen to someone else, not me. Memory, on the other hand, is my story. The past that made me who I am today, of whose legacy I am guardian, not just for myself, but for the sake of generations to come. That's what memory is. Without memory, there is no identity. And without identity, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, without memory, without identity, we are mere dust on the surface of infinity. And memory is what we have to use to carry what came before us to what comes after us. I mentioned a few minutes ago and uh, the, what it was like to go to the synagogue when I was a kid. And I've told my own children and my own grandchildren about it, what it meant to go into the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, and on Yom Kippur, and to smell the, fresh, the freshly laundered uh, prayer shawls. Everybody got their prayer shawls washed in time for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And today, even today, when I have my own prayer shawl washed and I smell it, I, I get the scent of it, I'm reminded of my childhood in my grandfather's synagogue. So memory is important. And when the chauffeur is blown, it brings back memories. I remember, by the way, as a kid, that at the, end, at the end of Yom Kippur, the synagogue was on the first floor where I prayed with my grandparents. The windows were open and people came to the window from outside, stood outside the window when the, the, the last night of Yom Kippur, when the chauffeur was sounded, people who were not religious, people in their daily lives were not observant. The, a lot of them were Europeans who had been raised religiously and for one reason or another had given it up. When these people came outside the synagogue to hear the sound of the chauffeur, they were bringing back their childhood, their memories, 
and who they are. And that is the strength of memory. And the chauffeur is one of the strongest tools to revive memory. I didn't mean to use this portion of the program to preach, but preach sort of came out that way. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. One minute of Torah. The mitzvah of Hakel appears in this week's Torah portion of Vayelech. Hakel is the assembly that took place on Sukkot after every seven years. The Jewish king would read from a Torah scroll to the multitude of men, women, and children who came up to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem to encourage them in their connection with God. It's interesting to note that this mitzvah specifically named Hakel, meaning assembly, and not after any of the details regarding what this assembly was for. Apparently, there is great power when Jewish people simply unite. Ever since the destruction of the Holy Temple, there are many mitzvot we cannot fulfill completely, Hakel among them. This new year, the year after the Shemitah sabbatical year, is a Hakel year. We hope and pray that we'll have the Holy Temple up and running by the time Sukkot comes around. Either way, we can still have a Hakel-filled holiday and year, uniting with each other at every opportunity. Hakel gatherings with family, friends, or strangers create incredible energy amongst us and the world at large. And when God sees His children unite, He will surely sign and seal us all in the Book of Life and Blessings. With your Iron of Torah, this is Chava Zekovich. Shana Tova. This is Jay Shapiro again. I want to start this segment of the program with something that's really far, far under the headlines. I found it on page six of the English language newspaper and on page 12 of the one of the Hebrew language newspapers. But it's something that I think deserves attention. It has to do with the Jews in Chile and the Chilean president, whose name is Gabriel Boric. He sent a message to his country's Jewish community that they do not need to be worried after his snub of Israel's ambassador, but it had the opposite effect. What happened was, Boric made remarks two days after his refusal to accept the credentials of the Israeli ambassador. Um, uh, his name is Gil Arcieli. When the ambassador was ready in the presidential palace on a scheduled date, this sparked a diplomatic crisis between Jerusalem and Chile. The foreign minister of Chile apologized to Israel repeatedly for the incident, including an apology personally to President Isaac Herzog on the sidelines of Queen Elizabeth's funeral last week and rescheduled Archieli's accreditation for the end of the month. Now, Boric, the president of Chile, supports boycotting Israel and has a history of statements against the Jewish community in Chile. Now, uh, he himself has not apologized to the Israeli ambassador. A prominent member of the Chilean Jewish community tweeted that Bork is so good at asking forgiveness except when it comes to the Jews. So I'll just have to leave it there. Very interesting. The head of the Jewish community there 
uh, said that when President Bork says that all Chileans we are, are going to not going to persecute or discriminate against, I think that unfortunately he is saying just the opposite. Not to be persecuted because of race, creed, or idea should be basic for every citizen. So if you have to repeat it, it means you question it. It generates anti-Semitism and something to see on social networks. The increases in anti-Semitic messages since this diplomatic conflict began. According to the leader of the Jewish community in Chile, anti-Semitism in Chile has become quite virulent. The, uh, also, um, the uh, Boric, the president, made remarks in an email that there's no need to say something obvious. No one should feel persecuted. You should not need to be reassured about not being persecuted. It's interesting that the leader of the Jewish community said that when the president uh, referred to President Borg, referred to Jews as people who live in our country, as to, as opposed to calling them Chileans, though he was, un it sounds like he was uncertain if that distinction was intentional. So the uh, European Coalition for Israel round with that interpretation. In the letter, they asked the UN Secretary General to call out Iranian president for his Holocaust denial and to call out Boric for anti-Semitism. According to a letter to the UN from the Jewish community, President Boric of Argentina has consistently displayed hostility towards Israel and the Jewish people. He's repeatedly singled out Israel for criticism including Israel of genocide and apartheid. Furthermore, he has characterized Chilean Jews not as Chileans, but people who live in our country, thus implying dual loyalty and that Jews are somehow different from other citizens of Chile. So this is, as I said, this is something I found way back on the back pages. At the same time, that uh, President Boric uh, was receiving uh, the uh, uh, credentials of the Saudi Arabian ambassador, he did not receive the credentials of the Israeli ambassador. So that sort of shows a lack of respect, no matter how you slice it. If if they feel that if the president feels he's progressive, they should first remember what's happening in Saudi Arabia against, for example, women's rights. There's a big inconsistency in the action of the president of Chile, and um, there's obviously the Jews are minority, but we, they deserve all the respect like other minorities. So, although the president is all supportive of the anti-Israel BDS movement, he's taken action over the years targeting the Jewish community as a country for, in his country. Back, for example, as a legislator back in 2015, he was one of only two members of parliament who voted against conferring honorary citizenship on a Chilean rabbi named Weingarten who lived in the country since 19. 88. 
Back in 2019, the Chilean Jewish community distributed honey to lawmakers in Ars of Rosh Hashanah with a card reaffirming their commitment to a more inclusive, supportive, and respectful society. And when Boric, at that time, was a member of the parliament, he got he we got the message. He, he wrote back that they can start by asking Israel to return the illegal, illegally occupied Palestinian territories. Also, in a subsequent virtual meeting with the Jewish community, he accused them of supporting a murderous state, Israel. So the uh, it's interesting that th- this action by, on the part of the president of Chile didn't get front page headlines even here in Israel, and I think it's really important. important. Chile is a major country in South America. The Jewish community there feels that they're being uh, uh, insulted or perhaps even oppressed. That's something that deserves bigger headlines. If there's any further uh, things happening on this issue, I can find out about it. I'll get back to the listeners. Now on a different topic, and one I think the, I hope the listeners will find of interest, the Jerusalem Post published a survey last week that emphasized how opposite Israeli and American Jews are. 70% of Jews in Israel do not accept that someone can be Jewish by patrilineal descent. This is according to a new poll by the Israel Democracy Institute. 26% say do not accept patrilineal descent, and 44% said that they don't know. Patrilineal uh, descent, of course, means uh, you are what your father is. And Jewish law, you are what your mother is. So if a Jew- Jewish woman is married to a non-Jew, to have a child, the child is Jewish. If a, uh, if a Jewish man is married to a non-Jewish woman, their child is not Jewish. So they, uh, they did a survey here in Israel and the segmentation of the data according to religious definition shows that the more secular the public, the more it sees the children of a Jewish father as Jews. That was a small majority, roughly 50%, among this group who do not accept patrilineal descent. Judaism traditionally holds that the Jewish identity can only be passed down through one's mother, which is referred to as matrimonial uh, descent. If only one's father is Jewish, then they are not usually counted as a Jew. Now, in contrast, a large majority of American Jews actually consider a son and daughter of a Jew as Jewish, regardless regardless of what background is their mother. In other words, the majority of American Jews say that if one of your parents is Jewish, then you're Jewish. According to a 2020 Pew survey on Jewish life in the United States, just over half of Jews who do not identify with any particular branch of Judaism say that both of their parents are Jewish while one in five say only their mother or only their father is Jewish, is uh, 
questionable. In addition, close to 30% of Reformed Jews in the United States have only one Jewish parent. That's interesting. Almost 30%, actually 28% of Reformed Jews, people who identify as Reformed Jews in the United States, they have only one Jewish parent. Now, it turns out that Jews 65 years and older are much more likely to, to, than those under 30 to say both of their parents are or were Jewish. 46% of the young Jewish adults have only one Jewish parent. So, since 1983, the Reform Movement officially accepted children born to a Jewish father regardless of the identity of their mother, as long as the children are raised Jewish and engage in Jewish life. In other words, Reform, as opposed to Orthodox and Conservative, I guess, say that if a kid uh, has one parent Jewish, whether it's the father or the mother, and they're, they're raised Jewish, the question is, what does it mean to be raised Jewish and engage in Jewish life? Again, I question what does it mean to say engaged in Jewish life? Does it mean uh, going uh, once a year to synagogue? Or what, what does it mean? I don't know what it means, engaged in Jewish life. Turns out, as far as the conservative Jews in the United States are concerned, that uh, almost 70% of people who responded to this survey who belong to conservative congregation agree to the statement that anyone who was raised Jewish, even if his or her mother was Gentile and the father was Jewish, is Jewish. The conservative movement still has not accepted Judaism by patrilineal descent, yet a majority of its members already 30 years ago considered themselves uh, or others as Jews if they had a Jewish father. <coughs> now these numbers emphasize even more why the split between American Jews and Israeli Jews will continue to grow. These trends are rooted in both the cultures of Israel and the culture of the United States and there are multiple reasons why each side is becoming more extreme in a sense. There are those who blame the chief rabbinate here in Israel for this trend. For example, these people in Israel are turning more and more away from religion because they don't like the chief rabbinate. But uh, does that explain why the Israeli branch of the reform movement will not accept Jews of patrilineal descent? So reform Jews in Israel we will not accept someone as uh, someone is Jewish that the father was Jewish and not, and not the mother. And that's different than the reform movement in the United States. So the, uh, the, the reform movement in Israel forbids intermarriage. A reform congregation in Tel Aviv has, says on its website, we do not officiate weddings of interfaith couples. Both spouses must be Jewish through lineage or conversion. They also note that even a person whose father is Jewish, but whose mother is not Jewish, must undergo a conversion process. 
and we offer unique courses and study sessions for those whose father is Jewish and who is educated without the, within the Israeli education system. In other words, in a sense, or in a real sense, the reform movement in Israel is more hardline than the reform movement in the United States. They will not accept someone Jewish whose mother is not Jewish. So what we learn from this fascinating difference between Jews in the world's two largest communities, Israel and the United States, is the following. Secular and even reformed Jews in Israel are more religious than their American counterparts. In the U.S., it seems as though most Jewish groups are more liberal, with mainstream Haredi Americans usually more open-minded than Israeli Haredi. American Haredim, for example, the so-called ultra-Orthodox, may go to a baseball game or earn a degree in college, whereas Israeli Haredim are a lot more conservative on these matters. Reform and even conservative Jews in Israel are also more religious than Americans who are members of the same movement. Now, I'm not sure, you know, I read this, and I'm not sure what it means by religious, but I have to assume it means that you go through the known rituals, like attending services, fasting on Yom Kippur, and things like that. It's very hard to define the word religious. So if half of secular Israelis do not accept Jews of patrilineal descent, this is something that will be very difficult to change. If the Israeli branch of the reform movement the, uh, won't recognize patrilineal descent, uh, that, then something substantial needs to happen in order to bridge this gap between reformed Jews here and reformed Jews in the United States. So, in a sense, it turns out, uh, I've had to sum it up somehow, reform, reform and, and conservative in America are much more liberal, and they accept things that the reform and conservative, of course, they are the orthodox areas do not accept, and also the people here in Israel who do not really identify with religion. It's interesting, for example, I forget what the exact percentage is, but I think something like over 90% of the Jews in Israel fast on Yom Kippur. Uh, that the, and, I mean, obviously, most of them are not what we would call religious. There are Jews who, uh, who, do, who do not participate in anything religiously Jewish during the entire year. I would argue, by the way, looking at it philosophically, if, if a, a Jew is raised here in Israel and doesn't know anything about the Jewish religion, and this happens uh, about a week ago, I had a conversation with a um, fellow who came to do some work in our apartment, and he's born and raised in Israel, and he uh, didn't know whether Rosh Hashanah comes before Yom Kippur or when exactly Sukkot comes out. There's a lot of people like that here in Israel who are their education, they, they didn't really teach these people anything about Jewish, but on the other hand, 
These are people who serve in the army and are willing to give up their life for the Jewish state. To me, that is a form of religion. That's my personal opinion. I'm sure a lot of people agree with that. There are people who are willing to give up their lives for the Jews, for the state of Israel. There are other people who uh, we call religious, who avoid service in the army or even national service of any kind. So the question is, can you really call these people religious? I don't know. This is a big philosophical issue, and much smarter people than myself have engaged in this. And it's one of those issues that really has no solution. People have opinions, and once in a while they change their opinion. The bottom line is, what's the practical difference? If somebody in Israel prays three times a day, and another guy never sets foot in a synagogue, but they serve in the same army unit, and I've experienced that myself. So can we say one is more religious than the other if a person is willing to put his life on the line for the Jewish people? So it turns out in terms like that, the reform movement in Israel is much more religious, if you will, than the reform movement in the United States. Uh, just uh, some thoughts I wanted to uh, share with the listeners. Uh, our Prime Minister, Yair Lapid, met several weeks ago with King Abdullah of Jordan on the sidelines at the UN General Assembly in New York, and afterwards he issued a statement that represented a strengthening of Israeli-Jordan times. Now that sounds like good news, because relations with Jordan are strategically important for both Israel and Jordan. Take a look at the map. And meetings such as these can only help improve communications and foster closer ties. It's a good idea, and it's good, that ties with Amman, which suffered under Benjamin Netanyahu's period in office, are being strengthened, and that is a good thing. However, let's put it this way, that was the good news. Now for the bad news. The bad news is that just before that meeting in New York, Abdullah addressed the UN and lied he libeled the Jewish state by saying, of all things, that Christianity is under attack in Jerusalem. As custodians of Jerusalem's Muslim and Christian holy sites, that is what Abdullah is, the custodian of both the Christian and the Muslim sites, Abdullah said we're committed to protecting their historical and legal status quo and to their safety and future. And as a Muslim leader, let me say clearly that we are committed to defending the rights, the precious, precious heritage, and the historic identity of the Christian people of our region. Nowhere is that more important than in Jerusalem, unquote. That's what Abdullah said at the UN. 
He went on to say that Christianity in the holy city is under fire. The rights of churches in Jerusalem are threatened. This cannot continue. Christianity is vital to the past and present of our region and to the Holy Land. It must remain an integral part of our future. That is what King uh, uh, Hussein, Abdullah, sorry, King Abdullah said at the UN. Now what's interesting is just the opposite. Christianity is retreating through the Middle East while, while ancient Christian communities in Iraq, Syria, Turkey, Egypt, Gaza, and even in Bethlehem, these Christian communities are shrinking. Three years ago, the British Foreign Secretary commissioned a report that concluded that the pervasive persecution of Christians sometimes amounting to genocide, is taking place in the Mideast, triggering a massive Christian exodus from the region. There is only one state in this region where the Christian community is actually growing. Believe it or not, that's Israel. Yet that is precisely the state that Abdullah chose as target place where Christianity is under fire. By the way, Bethlehem, which is under the Palestinian Authority, it, when I first came to Israel 50 years ago, I think it was like 80 or 90 percent Christian. Now it's down to about 10 percent. Christians are leaving that area. Now, this, what this King Hussein did in the UN is really, really what we call chutzpah for two main reasons. First, the king knows, he knows quite clearly that's not true, and that Israel zealously protects the rights of the churches in Jerusalem, as well as the freedom of worship for Christians throughout the city of Jerusalem. The king is also certainly aware that while the Christian community, his own country in Jordan, is shrinking, in Israel, the Christian community is actually growing. That's first of all. Second, Abdullah is presenting himself as some kind of guardian of religious liberty is very misleading, considering that Jordanian officials at the border with Israel regularly prevent Jews from crossing into Jordan from bringing in with their religious objects they need for daily ritual practice, such as a talit and tefillin, which they need for the morning service. In one instance, written about in the Jerusalem Post about a month ago, Jordanian border officials prevented two Jews carrying U.S. passports who were traveling actually to Saudi Arabia via Jordan. They did not allow them to bring their prayer shawls and tune into the Hashemite kingdom and even checked under their caps to make sure that they weren't wearing a skullcap, a kippah. Meanwhile, Abdullah at the UN is lecturing Israel about religious freedom. Beyond the utter nerve of this, there is something else problematic about Abdullah's words. 
At a time when tensions are running high in Jerusalem, at the time of the Jewish High Holidays, Rosh Hashanah and Kippur Sukkot, responsible leaders of goodwill, among those ranks Abdullah wants to be counted, should seek to lower the temperature, not to artificially raise the temperature. But by accusing Israel of threatening Christianity in Jerusalem, Abdullah was doing just that. Listening to him speak, one could conclude that not only is Al-Aqsa Mosque in danger under Israeli control, as the Muslim Brotherhood wants everyone to believe, but that Christianity is also under siege, under Israeli control. None of this was mentioned, understandably, in the short statement that Lapid released after he met with Abdullah. The Prime Minister was looking to improve, not harm, the atmosphere between Israel and Jordan. So we can only hope that Lapid took Abdullah to task in private for his outrageous remarks and urged him to carefully weigh his words regarding Jerusalem, especially at a time of increased tension. Improving the atmosphere between Jerusalem and Amman is a Jordanian interest as much as it is an Israeli interest. So it would be nice if we knew that our prime made it this clear to Abdullah. It's important, very important. The next item, totally different, uh, is really under the headlines, and it's really important. It's not subtle, but it doesn't get much uh, advertisement. The government, our government, is expected to approve an agreement with the European Union that would, in effect, force Israeli artists and institutions participate to participate in the program to boycott Judea and Samaria. The program in question, which is called Creative Europe, in which the European Union provides grants to cultural projects and institutions, and it was expected to be brought before the Israeli cabinet uh, I think right before Rosh Hashanah, I don't know uh, if it actually was, but I want to um, tell the listeners what this is all about. <coughs> the total creative budget for creative, uh, the total budget for creative Jordan is 2 billion euros, and Israel plans to contribute uh, 33 million Israeli shekels and the Culture and Sport Ministry expects Israeli culture will get back far more than that. Like all European Union, program, European Union programs, however, Creative Europe, a program, will not apply to Judea and Samaria, as well as areas under Israeli sovereignty that the, U, the European Union does not recognize recognize. This includes East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. So uh, it's interesting. Uh, 
the the uh, deputy mayor of Jerusalem wrote to the culture and sports minister that uh, to renegotiate these territorial claims of joining Creative Europe, which served the interest of the anti-Israeli boycott movement. She wrote a letter to the uh, sports minister uh, based, said, based on the terminology of the European Union discriminatory instructions, artists who receive grants or prizes will be prevented from proving the old city of Jerusalem and the Jerusalem neighborhoods, including Pisgah, Zever, Bar, Bar This is too high a price for strengthening ties between Israel and Europe. Now, it's important to note that according to Israeli law, boycotts based on geographic location, such as in the West Bank, are grounds for civil lawsuits. It's just not that simple. The, uh, it, it, if we don't respect our own status and our own policies, then uh, who will? A uh, Professor Eugene Kantorovich, who is the head of the Kohelet Policy Forum's International Law Department, said that if Israel does this, then this is a real self-BDS. In other words, Israel is, uh, according to this new thing from the European Union, Israel is willing to accept money if it's not spent on any artistic efforts, <clears throat> for example, in the West Bank. So that's the, uh, to, to sign this agreement with the European Union means to encourage artists to sign up for a deal where they'll be breaking the boycott law. Artists getting grants just won't be bought and will steal clear of the green line. That'll make a huge and immeasurable chilling effect. The uh, also the uh, the ultimate prime minister uh, and uh, the prime minister got a letter uh, from the Kohelet Policy Forum that said the government would be violating laws against discrimination by entering into Creative Europe and taking money from them. If the government does not announce that it's canceling its participation, then it put the certain organizations plan to petition the High Court of Justice. Now, interesting, the last time the Creative Europe program was brought before the government for a vote, a few years back, the, uh, the cultural minister blocked it because it excluded Judea and Samaria. So it'll cost Israel money not to receive this grant money, but they can't agree to an agreement that will not have money for Jewish organizations over the green line. Now, like previous European programs, the agreement is relevant only to European funding that comes from the program. The agreement does not prevent cultural institutions or artists who receive grants from the program from being active in Judea and Samaria. The, uh, it's interesting, it's sort of a, a, a complicated deal. Creative Europe, which provides the money from Europe, 
differentiates between audiences. Uh, in if Tel Aviv's Habima Theater receives a grant, it will not be able to form in the Jerusalem neighborhood of Gilo or in the city of Ariel and Samaria for the duration of the grant. The uh, the government's argument is that artists just can't do the, the funded project across the green line. But if the funded project is the institution itself or a play that they're performing, it becomes inseparable. Now, the uh, interesting that Israel rejoined something called the Horizon Europe program last year is like 95 uh, billion uh, euros in it and it invests in scientific research and it also excludes East Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank. Well, there was a case in which a Tel Aviv University geologist had to return a grant to the EU because they used a soil sample in Samaria, the ramifications of Israel joining a program with an agreement with it, that would include Ariel University which the, the which is part of Israel. Now, the the uh, the agreement they're trying to make includes a clear statement that this is not meant to harm Israel's principled stance stance about the status of the areas that entered into Israeli governance in June 1967. So it's interesting. The government is trying to get money from Europe to support artistic endeavors that place, take place in Jewish settlements beyond the Green Line by using all kind of subterfuges that, to make it not clear that the money was going to be give, given for art or for performances that are beyond the Green Line. So, of course, you can ask yourself, why not just forget about it? and forget the money, but it turns out 95 billion euros is apparently too big a prize for the artists to ignore. So they're struggling now how to rename what they're doing so that the money can be invested in artistic performances and artistic behavior, uh, uh, enterprises over the green line. So. Uh, as I said a moment ago, I guess uh, if you've got 95 billion euros up uh, for uh, a chance to get your hands on it, the artists are, uh, will do anything they can to uh, come to any subterfuge they want and make it not clear that the money is going to be spent over the green line. It'll be interesting to see how this works itself out if it appears in the news again. I can find it, I'll report to the listeners. It's rather fascinating. It's in what a case for the, uh, they want to have their cake and eat it too. I'll close this segment of the program with uh, something that's also pretty much uh, under the radar. There is a report came out that highlights Israel's impressive growth in wealth last year. Uh, the question you ask yourself is, do Israeli residents feel any richer in 2021 than they did in 2020? 
According to the Credit Suisse Research Institute, they put out a global report and they said the following, Israel's growth of wealth per adult showed strong resilience in 2021. According to the report, Israel was among the six largest gainers globally with a mean wealth per adult of $273,420. This number represents an increase of $41,000 in 2021 compared to 2020. Now, I, I don't know how they measure this, but the surge in wealth per adult in Israel is in, pretty much in line with a global surge in wealth. Global wealth increased to about 9.8%. So uh, it does, if you don't account for exchange rates or aggregate wealth and things of that nature, they figure out what the uh, how much people are making in all kind of countries around the world. And the report from the Swiss organization said that the average global individual did well this year with a rise of 8.4% in wealth per adult or a boost of $87,489. I have no idea where is this is going. Somehow I'm not part of it. I guess I should be jealous or maybe they just didn't include people like me in the statistics. But... Uh, uh, this is what the uh, Credit Suisse Research Institute says Israelis are getting richer. I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Bone marrow acts as a blood cell factory where blood cells are born and reach maturation before being transferred to the peripheral blood. When a malignancy or disease occurs, the factory malfunctions and certain cell populations are over or underproduced. Doctors analyze bone marrow to detect both benign and malignant blood disorders. An Israeli firm called Scopio Labs is working on a high-resolution, full-field imaging and artificial intelligence-driven decision support system. The product digitizes blood sample imaging and analysis, enabling hematologists to work remotely while raising the standard of workflow efficiency and improved diagnostic capability. Clinical-grade, AI-based decision support systems enable reliable and accelerated diagnostic capabilities, possibly leading to better patient outcomes. For more information on the high-tech world today, visit IsraelTechTalk.com. With your INTR Tech Minute, I'm Bob Aiello. You're back with Jay Shapiro. It's hard to believe that it's been since 2014, that's eight years, since Israel and the Palestinians last held talks about peace. And in the early 1990s, our prime minister and our foreign minister and the head of the Palestinian Authority won the Nobel Peace Prize. And I don't know if there's any kind of rule that requires you to return the peace prize if there's no peace. But uh, the Palestinian Authority president, uh, it went to the UN uh, last week, 
incited hatred, glorified terrorism, when he addressed the United Nations General Assembly. Our ambassador to the UN, Gilad Erdan, and I quote him, he said in a lie-filled rant, completely detached from reality, Abbas further proved his absolute irrelevance. He uses the UN as a platform to incite hatred against Israel while glorifying the terrorists that he himself funds. Our ambassador took particular issue with the Palestinian Authority's renewed drive to receive unilateral membership in the UN, a move which would need UN Security Council approval and which the United States has power to veto. That's very important. The Palestinian campaign to gain unjustified full membership status at the UN is doomed to fail. Their unilateral, unilateral campaign to force full membership won't pass in the Security Council. Our uh, Israeli ambassador to the UN, Erdan, explained that the U.S. and members of the Security Council are well aware that the Palestinians rejected every peace plan ever presented, they fund terrorists, and the Palestinian Authority doesn't even have sovereignty over their own territories, which are controlled by terror groups. It turns out that Abbas spoke at the UN a day after our Prime Minister, Yair Lapid, addressed the uh, UN General Assembly. Lapid, for his part, spoke of the importance of peace with the Palestinians, and he added something that got a lot of bad kickback in Israel. He affirmed his support for a two-state solution uh, to the conflict. But he did not call for renewed talks. But uh, Abbas accused Israel of destroying the two-state solution, saying that it has decided not to be a partner for peace with the Palestinians. And uh, the Palestinian Authority head, Abbas, when he spoke, said, and I quote, Yesterday I listened to U.S. President Joe Biden, Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid, and other world leaders who voice support for the two-state solution. And we, the Palestinians, yearn for peace. So let us make this peace in order to live in security, stability, and prosperity. It's unbelievable. It's hard to imagine that this is really happening. Here is a guy who funds terrorists to kill Israelis, and he's talking about yearning for peace. So interesting, he also stressed that the real test for the serious uh, of, this, of uh, Israel toward peace lies in the immediate return of the Israeli government to the negotiating table to implement the two-state solution on the basis of the resolutions of international legitimacy and the Arab Peace Initiative 2002. Now, it's also interesting, Biden, the president, who lauded Lapid's courageous statement, that's his words, he was silent after Abbas spoke. 
On the other hand, you, the European Union foreign policy chief, named Joseph Burrell, refrained from commenting on the speech, but warmly welcomed it. The uh, interesting Lapide recalled that the UN had recently agreed to schedule an EU-Israel Association meeting, which has not taken place since 2012. The EU delegation to the Palestinian Authority issued a statement focusing on Abbas's yearning for peace, and it said that the EU supports all efforts to take concrete steps to a meaningful political process, including high-level dialogue between the parties. By the way, aside from his call to renewed talks, Abbas used his time at the podium at the General Assembly to launch a scathing attack on Israel, accusing it, among other things, of committing massacres against the Palestinians, and he added assaults on Islam and Christian holy sites, something I spoke about previously. The uh, Palestinians, according to Abbas, will ask the International Criminal Court to launch an investigation into the crimes and massacres committed by Israel. He called on the on Israel to halt unilateral measures that undermine a two-state solution. It's, I, I, you know, I, I see these reports. I saw it in the newspapers, heard it on the radio, and uh, I just find it hard to believe that this is reality. The uh, he also uh, the Palestinian president repeated his threat to walk away from all signed agreements with Israel, noting that major Palestinian institutions had already voted in favor of severing all ties with the Jewish state. He also demanded implementation of UN resolutions 181 and 194. The first one, 191, was issued 1947. It called for partition of Palestine into Arab and Jewish states, while the second resolution, in, uh, number 194, adopted a year later, declares that Arab refugees wishing to return to their homes inside Israel should be permitted to do so. So Abbas also called on Israel, the U.S., and Britain to apologize to the Palestinians and offer them compensation because of their responsibility for the Balfour Declaration back in 1917. So the very fact that the UN gives a podium to this this uh, terrorist who's the head of a terrorist entity, and by the way, he himself isn't even sure of his seat because there are other Palestinian terror, terrorist groups who are trying to throw him out. So you know, you know, there are certain occasions. There's a holiday in Israel called Purim, and you, which you, uh, if people make fun and they ridicule other people, it's all considered legal on Purim, and they put on plays which make a mockery of reality. But I think that the UN General Assembly could probably be held its major session on Purim because it is so far from reality, so far from the truth, and it gives a platform to terrorists, it's simply, I'm sure, not what the original planners 
of the UN had back in 1945. It has become a not just a shadow of its former self, it doesn't even look like its former self at all when it gives a podium to a terrorist. By the way, after I finished the previous segment of the program in which I described how the head of the Palestinian Authority spoke at the UN and accused Israel of just, just about everything you can imagine, uh, he also asked Israel to force, uh, to, uh, he asked the UN to force Israel to comply with all international uh, resolutions uh, pertaining to the Arab conflict, which I just mentioned. I took a break in uh, uh, recording this program, and I opened the newspaper, and it said, uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas called President Isaac Herzog of Israel to wish him a Happy New Year on Rosh Hashanah. During the call, Herzog, our president, called for good neighborly relations between Israel and the Palestinians and underscored the importance of working together to ensure calm and stop violent extremism. The, uh, it's very interesting, by the way, I, I really question, of course I'm not a diplomat, I really question whether after the kind of speech that Abbas gave at the UN, whether our president should even have received his telephone call. There's some things that just have to be in, uh, ignored. The Palestinian president Abbas is paying people to kill Jews. Then he calls our president to wish him a happy new year. I think the president should not have accepted the call. That's a personal opinion. By the way, since it was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, um, the uh, the nation's population stood at 9,593,000. According to the annual report released last week of the, by the Central Bureau of Statistics, of this total, nine and a half million, seven million and sixty-nine thousand are Jewish. That's seventy-four percent of the population. In other words, the Jewish state has a population that's Jewish, seventy-four percent. A little over two million are Arab, which is twenty-one percent, and close to half a million are neither. The, the population grew by 187,000 over the last year, a rise of 2%, with 177,000 babies born and 53,000 people dying. By the way, of these people dying of corona, close to 5,000, I'm sorry, of these people dying, Close to 5,000 died of corona, and the country welcomed 60,000 new immigrants. And the report predicts population of Israel reached 10 million people in 2024, 15 million people in 2048, and 20 million in 2065. In addition, the Jewish agency announced there are 15.3 million Jews in the world. Now, according to that, it's up from 15.2 million last year. 
the global Jewish population, and this is really very interesting, the global Jewish population is still more than one million less than it was before the Holocaust. We haven't replaced all those people. After Israel, by the way, the largest number of Jews live in the United States, and they say six million. By the way, I would really, really question that number. They've been using the number five to six million since I was a kid. But how many of these people are really Jewish? How many, how many are the children, intermarried parents, where the mother's not Jewish? I don't know if these numbers mean anything. But since I'm citing the numbers for the listeners, I'll tell you, the next largest Jewish population of France, 442,000. Canada has 394,000. United Kingdom has 292,000. Argentina, 173,000. Russia, 145,000. Australia, 118,000. And Germany, 118,000. It's really interesting. There are the same number of Jews in Australia as there are in Germany. And uh, the, uh, there are more in France, many more in France, 442,000 compared to the United Kingdom, 292,000. Just to give a few more numbers, uh, Brazil has 91,000, South Africa 51,000, Hungary 46,000, Ukraine 40,000, Mexico 40,000, the Netherlands close to 30,000, Belgium 28,000, uh, Turkey 14,000, Spain 12,000, Austria 10,000, Panama 10,000. And these numbers include people who define themselves as Jewish and do not identify with another religion. If you were to add to the Israeli total uh, who's eligible for Israeli citizenship under the law return, the global total rises to 25.5 million. So that includes 7.5 million Israel. There are nearly 500,000 Israelis who receive citizenship under the law of return who are not registered as Jews. A half a million people. The, uh, the best Hebrew calendar, by the way, had the largest number of new immigrants in 20 years. Of the 16,000 people who came, new immigrants, called in, in Hebrew, they're called Olim, the 26,000 from Russia, 14,000 from Ukraine, 3,800 from the United States and Canada, 2,500 in France, 1,600 from Belarus, 1,400 from Ethiopia, 1,100 from Argentina, 600 from the UK, 500 from South Africa, and 400 from Brazil. So essentially more people came from Russia and Ukraine than from the US and Canada. Less than 4,000 came from the US and Canada. Also another interesting number, over a quarter of the new immigrants were between the ages of 18 and 35. And uh, close to 6,000 participate in special Jewish agency programs to help them immigrate into the job market and higher education. 
And I think most interesting of all these figures, 2200 Olim, new immigrants, served as lone soldiers in the Israeli army, and they received uh, support from programs. In other words, there were 2200 people came without their families to serve in the Israeli army. I think that's very nice. Uh, another item talking about numbers, uh, talking about the two-state solution, 36% of Israelis either strongly or somewhat agree that the government formed after the next election to try to advance the two-state solution. This is according to Israel Democracy Institute Voice of Israel Index. Among Jewish Israelis, that the number is 30% because the Arab Israelis at 60% who want to push a two-state solution. And the numbers among both Jews and Arabs were down from a similar survey back in 2021. At that time, that in 2021, 50% of the Israelis believed the government should try to advance a two-state solution. And now that number is down to 36 from 50. So in other words, I guess the Jews are starting to wise up. The... Uh, by the way, this data was published right after our prime minister claimed in his, his speech at the UN that most Israelis supported the two-state solution. The current survey shows that a strong majority believes this is not relevant for the next government. I don't know where our prime minister got his numbers from. Uh, by the way, uh, this I find these, uh, I don't know how uh, these never really mean anything, but I'm, I'm passing along to the listeners because I find them of interest. For example, the survey asked Israelis whether Israel should carry out a military attack against Iran's nuclear facilities, even without American agreement. And almost half, 49% answering, they strongly or somewhat strongly agreed that Israel should do so. Israel should bomb Iran, whether the Americans like it or not. The... Uh, the uh, head of Russia, John, the respondents were also asked that they thought the new Hebrew year would be light for the nation. The 31% of Israelis said the new year would be better. Uh, the uh, That's the same as the uh, same percent as last year. 18% would be a little or a lot worse. And 20% said they didn't know. That's interesting, by the way. Arab Israelis, 20%, 20 believe the coming year would be much better. 23% would be the same, and 36% said it would be worse. That's, uh, I, did, I don't know if these numbers mean anything, I find them of interest, and I best run to the listeners. Till next time, take care. Jay Shapiro signing off. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. 
If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at israelnewstalkradio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Doc Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 